1: Her spider eyes looked out and the worship hall of the narrow and low-lying nunnery had turned into a huge and ancient structure. A myriad of ox-headed, horse-faced monsters stretched out from cracks in the vermilion walls, the columns of the structure shuddering precariously, their stone footings groaning as if they couldn't bear the load. Suddenly, with a thundering sound like the sundering of heaven and earth, the ancient structure completely collapsed. Yellow dust shot high into the air, smashed bricks, shattered tiles, splintered beams, cracked rafters, along with clouds of dirt infused with reds and greens. They all scattered and bounced wildly in all directions before settling onto the broad earth with a noise like thunder, but sounding more like a mournful cry or gasp. Suddenly, a wisp of green smoke issued from the collapsed ruins, becoming higher and broader as it came forth, enshrouding the ancient decayed pile of ruins. Little moss-like objects competed to burst forth from the green smoke coming from the ruins. They took on all kinds of colors and all kinds of shapes. The little things swaying back and forth in the smoke slowly grew larger and a face formed on each one. Now, that's part of the closing scene of the recent translation of Mao Dun's Waverings by David Hall. This came out recently with the Research Center for Translation at the Chinese University of Hong Kong as a renditions paperback, and it came out in 2014. Now, Dave and I just talked about this translation, and it is really, at the same time, a beautiful work of English prose and one that's just a really moving experience and a pleasure to read. And, it's also a wonderful moment and monument um, that kind of situates us in a larger context of 1920s revolutionary China, and that informs, I think, how we understand not just the history of modern China, but also experiences thereof, and efforts to render those experiences and re-render, as you'll hear, those experiences in fictional form. So it's a rather extensive conversation, and I'll let you get right to it, but I'll just say, This was a book that really was a page turner for me and that I'm really excited um, not just to reread for the pleasure of the prose, but also to teach in contexts on modern East Asia and or 20th century China. It's, um, it really was a pleasure to read through, and it was a pleasure as well to talk with Dave about it. So I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book. It's well worth reading, and it's absolutely well worth assigning if you are in the position of um, teaching a class of undergraduates or graduate students in modern China. So thanks for listening. Thanks very much, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here to talk with David Hall about his new translation of Mao Dun's Waverings. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Dave. Thanks so much for um, writing this book, for translating, for being with me today, and for being willing to talk about not just this particular book, but also one of the most important crafts in our profession, that is the craft of the translator. So welcome, and thank you again.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much, Carla.
1: So let's start at the beginning. What brought you to work on China and on Chinese literature in particular?
0: Well, it is kind of a long and very uh, checkered past. I uh, originally... Went to uh, school for a theater degree and uh, with a, a kind of a minor in history and ran out of money very quickly and had to <laughs> kind of run off to the army and the, the embrace of the GI Bill before coming back to, uh, to school. And then when I came back, it was originally looking at a, a history or perhaps a political science degree. Um, but very quickly, this was at uh, – uh, UC Santa Barbara. And I ran into Ron Egan, who is one of the uh, most wonderful, genuine, beautiful kind of Chinese-style scholars that you'll ever meet. And uh, I I fell in love with um, all of the literature that that he kind of presented. And – Kind of tying in with my earlier uh, historical background and, and political science background, the, the pre-revolutionary period was kind of a natural, um, kind of a wonderful fit. And I think what really drew me to it is we have all of these incredible canonical authors—the uh, you know the Lu Xun's and Shen Wen and Ding Ling and all of these people that we all that we always read and should read, of course. Um, but it's amazing the sheer volume that was being put out in those years. Uh, it's easy to forget how much, um, how much really wonderful and sometimes overlooked stuff is is still there and still kind of woefully um, a untranslated and and, and b um, you know un- understudied. There's a lot of dross and there's a lot of horrible stuff there too. But uh, the, the the, the good stuff is still, still being mined in that kind of pre-revolutionary period.
1: And I love um, your story of how you came to the field also, in part because it's, it's amazing to me constantly how many of us were brought into the field of China, Chinese history, Chinese literature, thanks to the inspiration of a really special human Yes. So, uh, a special human of one sort of another so thank you to mm-hmm. all of you special humans out there who have inspired some of us to come and do the work that we do
0: so, Which makes me feel slightly better because I missed his panel at AAS. So.
1: Oh, AAS. That's the Association for Asian Studies annual meeting for all listeners. That was just in Chicago. And yes, I missed all of the panels. So I think that's just we can just agree to forgive each other and, and it's okay. So Dave, what's the focus of your research when you're not translating Mao Dun's works? What do you work on within the broader field of Chinese literature?
0: I think probably if I had to narrow it down the main thing that is constantly in- interesting to me is um, the the narrative voice and narrative mode um, as it shifts through this kind of move into um, move into modernity or move into into realism and kind of trying to Tease out the the intentional and perhaps not so intentional ways in which different authors try to bring their stories um, to us, and and obviously, uh, in in my particular period, it's it's kind of the the very. Pained rise of realism and how uh, so many authors looked toward realism and naturalism as a way of of escaping, you know, this 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 bugaboo of, of tradition and, and moving into modernity and moving into um, what some people would call the a, a new Western version of of fiction that that might uh, again to fall back on the tropes to that might save the nation.
1: So the book that we're talking about today is a translation of the second novel in a trilogy. This Mm -hmm. is the Eclipse trilogy comprising three books, Disillusions, Waverings, which is the one we're talking about today, and Pursuits. Now they were first published serially in something um, that can be translated as the short story magazine beginning in 1927, and they're the first fiction written by the man Shen Yan Shen Bing, who would later take on the pseudonym Mao Dun. Um, and many of us who work on China or Chinese history um, have either read um, or have and or have taught with and about Mao Dun. So how did you come to this particular writer and to this particular project? And why was it important for you to translate this work in particular?
0: Well, it was... Um... I first really ran into him I had read um a couple of his earlier uh or his earlier translated works uh Rainbow and Midnight but it was in a uh, a graduate seminar with another one of those great human beings Ted Huter's mm-hmm. um where we where we read Waverings, and um, during the discussion, uh, Ted had mentioned that uh, one of the kind of interesting hidden secrets of this novel was that it was it was massively re-edited um, after. After 1949, after the establishment of the of the People's Republic, and that the difference the differences were fairly profound, and this this really stuck in my mind. I had originally been uh, working on some earlier translation studies research project, projects, and um, almost immediately shifted my entire dissertation plan to start looking at this this problem of these kind of these two texts of um, of. Of wavering's and the, the text itself uh, is is you know it has it has its own problems but it's a it's a wonderful collection of many of the things that that brought me to literature uh, to Chinese literature the uh, the 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 problematic characters the the internal tensions and the the political strife and um, and some. A genuinely uh, beautiful writing as well, which is a nice bonus.
1: Awesome. Now you mentioned political strife, um, and that's Mm -hmm. actually really, really important. I think um, for us to understand in terms of understanding the context of the novel and the way um, that some of the events of the novel unfold. Mm -hmm. So, Waverings offers readers uh, offers readers a perspective on events that were taking place in 1926 and 1927, so revolutionary events in particular. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about what was happening in this period, and perhaps specifically, what was happening in terms of its impact on Mao Dun at the time? That's important for us to understand, in order for us to understand um, what you take to be important aspects of the context of the novel.
0: Yeah, sure. The – I think we can take a quick step back and, and do a, a little bit of biography for Mao Dun. Um, before he was a, a political actor and before he was a novelist, he was a, a literary critic and um, he was incredibly focused in bringing translated texts from the West uh, to to China and, and again with this goal that somehow this would be able to strengthen the intellectual uh body of, of China so that they could so that China could survive this onslaught of of forces. And for 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 Mao Dun, he saw this as kind of a uh, there was a hierarchy of of narrative modes. This idea that all literature moves from classicism to romanticism to realism or naturalism, and then maybe into symbolism or neo romanticism after that. And so he saw himself not as a uh, as a writer at all. He saw himself as someone who was guiding China through this path of of of. Of evolution, and um, the standard reading was, of course, that that the West had moved on to neo-romanticism, while China was still caught in romanticism. And so, by bringing these texts, these translated texts, he could kind of help Chinese authors learn how to write these advanced. Uh, narrative modes and help the Chinese audience kind of learn how to read them and so that's where he was when he started you know reading like everyone else was reading chandosio and and the kind of the new youth magazines and was kind of turned on to uh, his political path and he immediately uh, aligned himself with the leftists and the and the and the communists um, in fact he is probably one of the earliest uh, members of the Communist Party. He kind of joined their reading groups in, in 1921 I think it was. But in any case, by the time we get to the mid and late 20s, um, the Communist Party has been subsumed within the the Nationalist Party which is Chiang Kai-shek's, by this time, Chiang Kai-shek's kind of national size party that is kind of meant to bring the entirety of of China under, under one Rule again, and but by the time we get to 1926, 1927, um, the split between the leftists and the the rightists within the nationalist party becomes uh, becomes violent, and and there's actually an an a, uh, an insurrection and a, a crackdown where. Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists um, very often this is referred to as the the uh, Shanghai massacre and and other risings where Chen Kai-shek uh, basically signed, uh, brings out all of the communists and in in ideological terms purges them but in in real terms um, there are literal battlefields and literal battles that are fought sometimes in the cities and sometimes in the countryside where Mao Dun fits in this is he flees the, one of the centers of, this, of, this, of these battles. He flees Wuhan and, and tries to make it back to Shanghai um, while all these battles are, are happening. And he becomes ill, ends up staying in this mountain town while all these battles are, are, are uh, playing out. And by the time he eventually gets to Shanghai, um, the battles are over, the communists are obliterated, they're all running to the hills, and many of the people he knew are now dead. And so he's trapped in Shanghai, in hiding, um, trying to avoid the secret police of the nationalists, and he has nothing to do. And in one of his articles, he writes, um, he wanted to try to give a ray of hope to his compatriots that had survived and the only thing he could he could think of to do was to was to write this novel as a way of 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 giving them something to hang on to something to move forward with now that's not what the novel's end up doing and that you know but that was kind of his motivation for uh, for writing or at least the motivation he tells us
1: right. so it's a really powerful story actually it's just a i mean even just the story itself of how this <laughs> novel Gets written and then, as we'll come to in a moment, gets rewritten. Right? It right. Is itself really, really interesting. Now, am I correct in um, understanding that this was actually written also very quickly? Right. <laughs>
0: Yes, especially the the first two novels, Juan uh, Mie, The Disillusions and Waverings, were written in the course of a, of a handful of months at most. Uh, Pursuits, which is, to be honest, um, even more interesting uh, than, than Waverings. It's a, it's a much bigger mess, but it's much more interesting. Uh, took, um, I think, nearly a year to, to finish off and is problematic for a number of reasons.
1: <laughs> Thank you. So this is written quickly in, um, I think uh, it's said in the translation, the fall of 1927, as you said, while he's in hiding in Shanghai. Um, And as you've already mentioned, there were two different versions of the text. So Mm -hmm. one was written in 1927 and published in 1928, over three issues of the magazine we mentioned before. And then there's a revision in 1954. So this is totally fascinating. And you've already um, mentioned the fact that this is a particularly interesting problem for you mm-hmm. as well, right? This is perhaps one of the ways you got interested mm-hmm. in this work. So I want to just hit the ball back to you and ask you <laughs> to talk about that. Um, how? How did you come to the decision to translate the version or translate in light of this split yourself? And what are some of the most interesting differences between these versions? So differences, basically differences between the 1928 and 1954 Mm -hmm. versions and how you dealt with that discuss. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's it's um it's a wonderful problem to have. I'll I'll say that from the very beginning. The the 1954 version is. Uh, I should say that in 1949, of course, Mao Dun becomes the minister of culture for the People's Republic of China, and he is one of many um, authors who were. Savvy enough to stop writing fiction immediately once uh, the People's Republic was established. It's it's very difficult to avoid. Uh, a kind of a bad, uh, a bad future if you're writing fiction in the PRC uh, during those years. But in uh, I think it was in 1953, or it might have actually been in 1954, they were planning to uh, uh, publish the complete works of Mao Dun. And one of the editors of the the People's Press came to Mao Dun and said, "Do you want us to? Uh, do you want us to publish?" absolutely as is or do you want to uh make certain changes and the the implication was you might want to go back and take a look at your novel there might be some dangerous things there and i think the the quote was something like there are some certain portions that you might want to look at again and of course maldon being a very politically savvy guy um immediately knows what's what's at stake here uh and he he struggles over this he writes a wonderful article kind of struggling about his whether he should re-edit or rewrite the novels uh, for the new political climate and his 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 main struggle is if he doesn't edit it then he might be um, guilty of passing down errors, which is an incredibly politically tinged, very dangerous accusation. Um, if there are errors, if there are political problems in the original text, and you just republish it, um, then you are certainly uh, in danger of, of persecution. And on the other hand, he he writes very very movingly about the idea that if he changes anything in the in the original from the original text, he might lose the essence of, of, of what was originally there, and this really strikes home for me because in in his later fiction, um, he, he writes very well and he writes many good good novels but much of the passion and much of the confusion and much of the tension from those very early uh, works of fiction are gone as he becomes more politically stable so when we get to the the eclipse trilogy and and waverings in particular that tension and that that very earnest um, confusion about the waverings of his characters it's it's completely on his sleeve whereas later on it becomes more categorizable in 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 easily you know in the ideological forms and so in the end he kind of takes the uh, the practical uh, course, and he, I, we say, edits the the book, but in some cases, he he completely re- rewrites uh, major sections. Um, and uh, article I wrote uh, a while ago kind of goes over the different categories of 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 the changes that he made. Um, the the main one uh, is, you know, he does just clean up some some editorial stuff, of course. <laughs> But in some cases, he will make political decisions. There's in one of the novels, um, one of the the there's a doctor in the novel who very, uh, very dangerously says that China will, of course, after the war, have to take back Korea, Vietnam, and Siam, and you know all of these wow. things. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so clearly, that's going to get edited out. <laughs> um, but the, some of the other categories are much more uh subtle uh, for me personally i'm i'm very interested in the narrative voice changes in the original text um there's a lot of the of narrative of narrator speak, which kind of harkens back to earlier traditions of the novel, where the the narrator will speak to the reader. Um, the 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 classic standard is: if you want to know what happens next, you have to read the next chapter. Right? Mm. There is some of that narrator sp- narrator speak in in the the twenty seven twenty eight text, um, and almost without exception, he removes it in the fifty four text. Um, and I believe that's generally to. Uh, to to bring it in line with this ideal of what a realist novel should be. A realist novel should not have a narrator that speaks to the audience. But then there are some other things that um, – there's a lot of sexuality that gets uh, eliminated. Um, there are some characters, uh, many characters who are uh, complicated and and – Contradictory and, and problematic, and some of these characters are, are uh, simplified and made into more ideologically convenient types. Uh, there's a, a famous in Waverings. There's a, a character, the the widow Chen Su Suzhen, um, who you might remember from the from the novel. Uh, she is almost entirely eliminated in the 1954 uh, edition of the novel, to the point where I think it's chapter six. Um, in, in the uh in the new version in the fifty four version I think it runs a total of maybe four or five pages because her entire story is is eliminated and and my reading of that is that uh she is a very she's an incredibly interesting character but she is problematic because she she's a you know she used to have bound feet she's a widow she you know she's one of these types that could be a great. Kind of socialist martyr, um, but in fact uh, she ends up kind of working with the reactionaries, and and that doesn't work very ideologically uh, cleanly in the nineteen fifty four uh, political climate. And some some literary critics had had uh, critiqued that character in particular. Tian um, Xingchun, Ching is one of the the. Critics who said this character is a, is a problem, and so hmm. it kind of shows that Maldon was listening. But you know, maybe this was a character he was able to eliminate so that he could save some of the uh, complications in the later characters. So to to end this this long blathering spiel, no, 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 no. <laughs> the the reason I chose uh, mainly to translate from the the twenty seven twenty eight edition is that I think today. When students, particularly Chinese students, when they hear uh, Mao Dun, they hear what he's famous for. They hear he's this famous realist author who writes about the, the contradictions and the problems within the uh, – uh kind of the hearts of the of the the petty bourgeois who are trying to be revolutionaries when they go back and they look at his novels um they look at you know midnight and 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 rainbow and those are well enough but if they look to waverings they'll they'll see the 1954 version and it is it 's not bad but it's it 's a diminished novel and and much of that much of the things that he 's famous for these complicated female characters, these problematic these these issues um, the 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 kind of violent raw feeling of the novels um it 's kind of tamped down in the edition that they read, so I wanted to make sure that the english edition um, Kind of was able to, in some way, hopefully show the English readers some of this, some of this torment that the original had that that kind of gained Malduin his his uh, his his fame very rightfully so.
1: Awesome, and you've actually touched on already some a bunch of really interesting issues that I'd, I'd love to ask you about. <laughs> so I'm going to get to as many of them as I can. Now, one of them um, comes up in your discussions of. The really interesting women characters, um, Mm. sexuality. Now, one of the most striking aspects of the novel, at least for me and my experience reading Waverings, um, you know, to prepare for our conversation today is, in fact, the way it takes on gender issues and issues Mm. of sexuality. So. For you, um I mean, this is all over the novel, right? There's a million yes. one ways we can probably talk about this, <laughs> but what are some of the most interesting ways for you that that happens in waverings?
0: Well, I think um. M- Malduin, he, he he actually in another one of his articles, he says that he draws uh, many of his characters. His his wife was involved in the women's movement at the time, and she would be ha- she would have many meetings in their home, and he would kind of be a fly on the wall and listen to these characters. So, I think um, in because he's one of these novelists who he's kind of one of the first people who is writing uh, complicated, three-dimensional, fully formed uh, female characters he's drawing them from real people. You know, He he claims that of course he's not pulling them wholesale from real people but the when we come up against characters like uh, Sun Yang, who I think is one of the m- most interesting characters in the novel mm-hmm. um, she In many cases, she acts in a way that is ideologically um, unsupportable. And yet, we recognize the actions. Um, there's one incredible scene where she's trying to convince the the kind of the lead character to go back to his wife and and not pursue this uh, potential adulterous relationship. And she ends this very impassioned conversation by kissing him. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's a horribly painful situation because the our main character is is totally smitten with her and and yet and she knows this and yet she kisses him to try to give him a taste of this this kind of wild world that he he can't have and in an ideologically correct world in which mao the later mao the the minister of culture mao lives um this is ideologically wrong and vile and this proves that she is you know she's a, a corrosive character um but in that scene, it reads incredibly naturally, and it, it it reads like something, you know, your best friend would tell you she did, and you're like, oh God, why did you do that? <laughs> but you completely can see it; you can totally see this this very sexual creature not understanding the torment that she would cause by by kissing him, and so I think the the. The kind of central character in those terms is Sun Yang, But of course, um, Mrs. Fang, the main character's wife, is also a, a wonderful but much more subtle um, exploration of, of how the feminine is, is still constrained – within these petty bourgeois, these 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 women who are attempting to try to explore ways of being their own agents, um, and yet and yet are unable to come to terms with this with the new, with the modern and, and this sort of thing. And of course that comes to a head in the in the the climax of the novel. And then the other the other example that I generally give is is the one I mentioned before, the 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 widow Tien. Um, she is a A very constrained character that eventually um, she also uses her sexuality to kind of protect herself in a way that is totally understandable, but at the same time incompatible with the way that these, these, these these idealists in terms of their ideology, these idealists would see her and say, well, no, you have to either be you know, a a model hero or a martyr. You can't negotiate with the reactionaries, and 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 doubly so, you can't negotiate with your sexuality. You can't negotiate with your um, with your body, and so there's. Those are three possibilities if you want to take any of those further.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would actually love to take all of them. further, (laughs) And perhaps we'll uh, we'll do so in different ways. But you mentioned the climax of the novel, right? And this is, um, speaking of the way that the book deals with issues of gender and and women in particular, this is a really, really powerful moment. Um, So at this point in the novel... Um, wh- there is a discussion about the communization of women. <laughs> yes. Right? So, so, maybe could you, for listeners who have never um, read about or read the novel and who might um, be interested in what's going on there, can you maybe take us into that part of what's going on? What's up with the communization <laughs> of women and how does this kind of explode by the end of the novel in really kind of an interesting but also really violent
0: you know, way. Yeah, in, 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 in and in a that's and that's one of the things as as kind of a slight digression. That's one of the things that is um, quite shocking about this novel. Um, I don't know whether you felt this as well, but mm-hmm. the the violence um, it, it comes on so fast and oh, so yeah. uh, it's unexpected in a way that again kind of hits with the realism or the naturalism of the of the of the novel, and that's exactly. It, I mean that's intentional in a, in a way to show how while while these characters are wavering back and forth and trying to find out who they are, other people are planning horrible horrible things. Uh, but to go back to the communization of of women, it's a uh, it's a funny thing. Well, funny is probably not the right word. It's it's a common thing that happens in most uh, processes of socialization in 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 nations where in 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 our. Uh, situation in the the chinese context um, the the socialists and the communists were saying, Well, we need to try to free women. And mainly what they were thinking of were the, the concubines. They needed to be freed from their their you know their patriarchal uh, family systems, and they needed to be given their own life. Uh, they're also very interested in, in Buddhist nuns. Um, they want to be able to – because in many cases, uh, women, girls would become nuns because they had no other options, and they wanted to kind of free women from those kind of feudal and patriarchal uh, systems and what would happen in is that they would uh propagandize those kind of we're going to free women we're going to take them out of these situations but what would what almost always happens is the uh in 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 these terms the reactionaries the the non-communists would say well If you are communists – and communism literally means kind of the sharing of property Mm – then when you talk about freeing these women, you're talking about moving – because women are property. You're talking about moving these women into a social sphere rather than in a private sphere and logically – that means if you're moving them from private – you're moving these these products, these, these pieces of property from private – the private realm to a free realm, that means that it, they're going to be in a social sphere and because women are property and you are communizing property – Communizing women is is a is a logical uh, step, and it it seems it sounds absurd when you when you lay it out like that, but it makes for incredibly effective propaganda when you say that well the communists are coming and they're going to take all of your women and they're mm-hmm. going to share your women with the peasantry. Right,
1: and in this um just to kind of jump in and at this moment as the as you mentioned just before, um the really, um, shocking onset on and onslaught of the violence. There's this move where as a reader you're reading through and you're reading, you know, these sort of, um, these propagandistic claims in the novel that you know, women are property. So we should have wives to the wifeless and distribute. <laughs> and it's like, ha ha. Well, oh, that's kind of funny. You know, this is, right. a tar- ha ha and you're laughing. And then suddenly you've got women dead in the gutter with their mm. breasts cut off. And it's this incredibly violent, like smack in the face, like, whoa, stop laughing. You know, yeah. like something massive just happened. Yeah. What well, just and, happened?
0: And and I'll I'll throw in one uh, uh kind of complication to this in that specific scene when you're when they are they bring women out basically to to a a marketplace and they're you know trying they're drawing lots to see which of these horribly scabby headed peasants are going to be given the beautiful concubine of one of the local uh, local leaders. Um, you, we, I mean, clearly the satire is there, and it's you know we're laughing at this this very gorgeous kind of kind of uh, uh, spoiled woman that's being handed to this to this uh, this rude peasant. And the closing of that scene is is like a, a kind of a dash of ice water because um, when things start to fall apart. The, the peasant grabs the woman and, and rushes, hit, rushes her into a local temple, um, presumably to, to, to rape her, and then there's this horrifying line. You hear the laughter of the woman coming out, of the, uh, out from the walls of the temple, and it's, it's never explained, but you can imagine this, this, uh, the world of this woman – and she, the whole time she's been resisting and, and trying to get away, but then we get her laughter. And so it, it's – sometimes Maldun is very heavy-handed with the things that he wants you to see, but the way that is left hanging is is haunting in a, in a very uh, disconcerting way.
1: Yeah. I mean it stays with you. And it, yes. I mean it just – and even that rapidity of the move from ha-ha, right. that satire, that's so funny. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah. How did she, like, what's going on? bet you mentioned just before, um, or just now, the word haunting. And that brings up another really, I think, interesting element of the book that I'd really love to ask you about. <laughs> so you mentioned Mrs. Fung a little bit earlier. Um, she's the wife of one of the main characters, and she's really, really interesting and a very complex kind of character, yes. um, as you've mentioned already. Now, there's this scene at the end of the novel where she sees a spider. Mm-hmm. But what it means to see this spider is really, really complicated and really beautiful and really kind of astounding. And it's mm-hmm. one of many moments in the novel where visions and illusions become really important and actually really beautifully rendered and really mm-hmm. touching and moving parts of the narrative. So, can you um, take us into this element of the novel by maybe talking a little bit about Mrs. Fong's spider? Mm-hmm. Maybe we can talk um, more broadly about um, your approach to an understanding of the recurrence of illusions mm-hmm. and visions here
0: so the the final scene that you're talking about is um, is very difficult to get through. I, I, I teach this, uh, this novel as often as I can. And it's always fun to see how students, uh, how undergraduates, um, deal with this passage. It is, um, she is basically at the end of her rope. Um, she is exhausted mentally and physically and, and they're fleeing the city, which has been, has fallen to basically an invading army. And, um, in this in this one moment, where that she feels that she's found a slight place of safe of safety, um, she and her husband are together again, and, and they're they're in this place of safety, this nunnery, this old nunnery. Um, she kind of collapses, and uh, Sun Wuyang, the the character that her husband may or may not have been uh, at least emotionally cheating on her with, um, comes in and tells her. Uh, and tells uh, Mrs. Fong that her best friend has been murdered in a in a, a horribly brutal and and uh, vis- 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 visceral, visceral way um, and she snaps um, in 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 into this hallucination and so she she sees a spider that's been swinging uh it, on a on a strand one strand thread from the ceiling and the spider is is kind of floating back and forth and it starts to become bigger and it becomes kind of this bloated distending distended body that's hanging from the thread and and it seems to be you know uh gasping for breath and and it 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 suddenly transforms into this this huge um disgusting uh vision of of flying heads and and demonic creatures and and at, at and at some in some place she becomes this spider and she is looking out from its spider eyes and it it's playing uh, on on the on the surface kind of level it's playing with this idea of herself being unable to control where she is and being kind of blown back and forth in uh, by the wind but the uh, the the extent that this this fantasy this illusion goes to um is is much larger than than just mrs fong herself it's kind of a collapsing of the entire uh of the entire type of Woman, mm-hmm. uh, the entire type of of, of person that she uh, is kind of not necessarily symbolic of, that, but that she in, inhabits. Mm-hmm. And to move on to kind of the 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 illusions in general, um, there are three or four uh, kind of major illusions in in the or, or or hallucinations in the book, and and at each point they come from a character. Kind of being uh, being struck by a blow. Uh, the first one we see is our our main character Fang Lolan. He goes out to the to the to the backyard, and he's kind of frustrated with his home life. And he he sees this vision kind of these fireflies come together and form uh, a vision of the face of Sun Yang and this kind of woman that he's he's attracted to, and. It's 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 a very poignant thing because this gorgeous beautiful woman appears before him and what snaps him out of the hallucination is hearing his wife and his son playing in the kitchen. And so there's this there's this interplay between realism, which is what Mao Dun is critically interested in. Realism is again the way that China is going to be saved. It's an incredibly serious undertaking. And and but he continually is playing with it where reality breaks and realism is unable to carry forth the, the narrative and so when fang luolan becomes obsessed with this this woman reality breaks it's unable to hold together and therefore we have this this illusion this fantasy and in the same way in in the the end of the novel it's it, it's it's critical that the novel ends without realism. You know, realism is the way we save China, but yet at the end of this novel, we can't bring closure to any of this without this fantastic hallucination and and, and illusion. Um, and I, I think it it's speaking directly to this idea of of the ability for realism to to handle the the very real problems that Malduin sees in 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 society and as much as he says he believes that realism is the way forward and realism is the way to 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 help he is acutely aware that the the very real people that are living in these situations um might not be able to hold together with with reality, if that makes any sense. Yeah,
1: it it totally does. And it really – I mean, um, I should say this uh, right – I should have said this right away, but I'm going to say it now. Congratulations on the translation because in the English, you know, I'm reading through. This must have been really – Challenging, right, to render <laughs> and to render so seamlessly. This movement from a very realistic tone to suddenly we're in this hallucination that's gorgeous. I mean, the prose of it is just gorgeously rendered. So thank you for that, <laughs> and also um, oh, I just shit. I'm astounded by the skill that it must have taken to to do that and to make it work so well because it really is a pulling of us really smoothly and seamlessly from this hyper realistic or a very realistic mode of narration to suddenly, you know, we're a many-headed spider. Or suddenly <laughs> we're in this, you know, vision of this femme fatale as, you know, it, it's just really gorgeously done.
0: Well, and I mean, I thank you. The, the, I think most of the credit obviously goes to Maud But one of the things that, that he kind of helped me with that <laughs> translation is that he is – He's not always a, a, a beautiful writer, and there's certainly some problems with his prose. Um, but he, one of the things in that specific passage that he does very well is he, he doesn't tip his hand at all. Um, in terms of especially moving in and out of illusion um, he he is able and I think this speaks broader to the his, the way he deals with characters in general um, he has a sympathy and or, or perhaps an empathy with the characters to the point where um, he's he's able to to the, the the technical term, of course, is the is free indirect voice. The idea that the the narration is moving through the point of view of the character who is the the principal of the scene, and he does this with such skill that um, through most of the novel, we're kind of reading the world through Fang Lolan, the the main character, his his point of view. But in this case, we've moved into seeing the world from Mrs. Fong's point of view. And because that move is so seamless, I think the move from her reality into her uh, illusion is something that we are more uh, acclimated to. We see that movement is not shocking when we move from character to character. And so we're we're tricked in a way by when we move into this, this spider world. Uh, because of that free and direct speech, uh, the way that the narrative has shifted like that.
1: And in fact, it's it's almost more shocking, not almost more, I think at least as as a reader, it's more shocking when we're still in the, when we're moving from um, circumstances to then consequences in mm-hmm. this realistic mode of narration, right? Again, just the sudden shocking right. um, outcomes that come when we're not expecting them than it is when we're moving to and from what might be described as reality and illusion?
0: Yeah, yeah, and then there. And I, I should mention, of course, you know, spoiler alert, of course. But the 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 the, um, the final line, I think, is 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 quite well put together because that's she, the the in her illusion world, you know, everything is collapsing, the nunnery is falling apart, there are hell, hell demons walking the earth, and then um, you know, I think the line. Yeah, the line darkness devoured and destroyed everything, filling all space, filling the entire universe. And then we have the last line is utterly realist. It's Miss Fong with a long anguished moan fell to the ground. And there's this this wonderful kind of snap back to where we actually were outside of her body and we kind of see her collapse because – and and we don't know. The assumption is that she is – you know, she's – she may not be alive. She, everything has, 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 been destroyed. And then in that last line, we're pulled back out looking down at, at like you say, at the result at the very realist uh, kind of um, what, what has been wrought in a, in a realist sense.
1: So let's talk about your work and your efforts, bringing this to an English language audience, because it is, as I mentioned, really astounding. And I think it just won a prize. Isn't that right the
0: pen was, prize Yeah it was it was it was when the the before it was published we got the the pen prize for
1: Congratulations Thank well you, deserved Bert. So so translation takes as we know a lot of time and a lot of energy and it isn't always a kind of labor that's acknowledged in the way that other <laughs> academic products are right and acknowledged um, read any number of ways Now at the same time translations often have much longer lives and are much more widely used and used by a much broader um, range of people than many of our other works. Mm. So how did you manage the work for this with your other teaching, research, and writing? For you, how did you make the labor involved in this work, given the larger ecology of the kinds of work that we need to do as academics?
0: (sighs) That's an excellent question that I, <laughs> that I haven't completely answered, to be honest. My 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 kind of my standard reaction is always that um, my academic research, um, my teaching, and my translation um, work in a cycle, which I hope is virtuous. Um, the idea being that. Um, no one reads closer than a translator. That's right. And for uh, for me, I. I almost need to do a translation to understand um, as closely as I need to 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 do any academic analysis and of course to do a translation credit you also have to do the background research and you have to you know you have to figure out who Maudwin was before you can translate him and 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 these sort of issues so um, the the end result is that you know I, I I whether or not I'm able to put out a monograph on Maldu and that's very much you know uh, up up, to, up for question, but I am pulling research from this translation that that would have been impossible without the 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 translation first uh, happening, um, so. Mm-hmm. I my hope is, and of course, the teaching side of that is is uh, I'm I, I'm always happy to give my students uh, drafts of translations that I'm working on, not only to get you know more sets of eyes on it, but because it's 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 a wonderful opportunity when you get. Uh, truly fresh eyes on a, on a piece of work. Sometimes we get so uh, focused in our own little academic wells that it really does take an undergraduate who comes to you and says, well, this is clearly going on here and you hadn't seen it before. So it's a, it's a, it's a, hopefully, like I say, a, a virtuous cycle. <laughs> like
1: one of my favorite experiences of the last couple of years was, um, you know, trying to motivate myself to make progress on my current book manuscript by um, with a few interns that I had, undergraduate interns, mm-hmm. offering them up a few pages at a time of the current chapter that I was working on for their feedback. And it was amazing because they would ask these questions that, you know, colleagues wouldn't ask right. because they're too close, but that were profoundly helpful. Like, you know, questions like, I don't understand what the hell is going on here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, what is up with this guy? Like, what, is this the same guy as other guy? Like, what do you yeah. mean? And it's these questions that I think are super, super useful that we are often too close to the material as, as a, are our colleagues um, to ask. And I think they make you well, work much better.
0: It's funny that you mention that because specifically with the character of Sumoye, down. um you know we would have many weeks worth of discussion sections on what exactly was going on with that character and w- because many of these these students had didn't have the uh the kind of gender studies the the lit crit background they were asking the most wonderful and incredibly pointed questions that really made me kind of shift my stance and and, and see what the text was actually saying rather than what i thought the text should be saying, and that's a it's a wonderful opportunity.
1: So, for you as a translator, um, let's talk a little bit. And we don't have a whole lot more time, but I want to oh. talk a little bit about um, your kind of your experience translating this particular work. So, you've mentioned some of the elements of Maldon's prose um, that are more or less um, challenging to get through as a translator. So, maybe let's turn to that. Did any characteristics of his prose? Pose particular challenges in your work as a translator, and would you mind talking about them? If so,
0: I think um, I'm 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 very fortunate in terms of, of Mao Dun being so focused on what he thought a realist novel should be, um, because he his his prose is incredibly clean. When, when there's not, you know, an actual uh, mistake or a typo or something, um, but he he writes. In a in a in a a, a fairly simple, fairly straightforward way uh, that that hopefully came out in English, but it also does um, when he does decide to go for flights of fancy when he does you know talk about crushed flowers and 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 bits of dresses or whenever he goes into rhapsodic uh, descriptions of, of 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 women's bodies usually, um, it really. It, it points those things out so clearly and and it 's nice as a translator to be able to use those opportunities to to push English a little bit um, to to be able to uh, kind of give give a little bit more rein to um, to the way English can really uh, be poetic in, in 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 and you can even push it almost to to being a, a slightly purple because the 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 realist background um, allows it to pop out so much more and I think Mao Dun does that uh, quite well in in a way that uh, other Chinese authors don't.
1: Ooh ooh ooh! So are there any? So immediately that makes me want to ask you if there are any moments like that. Um, where the prose allowed you to really push the English that stand out for you um, in your work on this.
0: I'm trying to think of a good example. There's one I, – I, I have a page open right now that is not perhaps the, the example that I would choose if I had more time. But there's a – one of the uh, passages that was deleted um, uh, is talking about the uh, – uh, The way in which, this is not from, from Waverings, this is from one of the other, the other novels of the, of the trilogy, but it's, um, she, it's a description of uh one of our heroic characters who is supposed to become a kind of a model of socialist future and all of this, and she ends up going losing her virginity to a man she shouldn't have lost her virginity to and it's this this wonderful description of her body exploding and and her her the pieces of herself kind of dissolving into mist and and I don't have the specific quote there but it's it's um it's fantastic in a way that's not illusion it's not a hallucination but it's that it's that kind of por- post orgasmic falling apart mm-hmm. that is um is is incredibly poetic and 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 very much at odds with his with his his standard uh, kind of realist background speech and of course this is part that was deleted because it was uh it was showing in in some way that she at least uh, enjoyed Losing her virginity, she enjoyed sex with this bad reactionary man, and so of course it wasn't it wasn't allowed to to stay in. Um, mm-hmm.
1: So what are? Thank you for that. Now this makes me <laughs> want to go and, and read whatever it is <laughs> I've got open on your desk right now. So so what? Um, as a translator, were your favorite or some of your favorite moments that you can recall at this point, right in the conversation yeah. um, of Wanderings that you translated? Were there any moments that you felt, wow, this was particularly satisfying as a translator to work through?
0: I, I think, um, the illusions are obviously the most fun and that's where yeah. I would, I would come, um, particularly the, the final, uh, few pages. But I think as a translator, one of the most difficult things to work through, um, was the, uh, was the, was the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I hesitate to say this is something that I enjoyed because obviously I didn't. But um, the one particular scene that's being described, where a woman has has had her breasts cut off, and um, I forget what the Chinese was, but I think my eventual rendering into English was that she was bleeding from below, mm-hmm. and this is evocative of the you know the. The very common, not just rapes that were going on during the this this period of this revolutionary violent period, but the um, desecration of of particularly the female bodies, uh, and it, it's a very as a translator, I wanted to make sure that that horror was was uh, was brought out, and I wanted to be able for the reader to uh, to feel that horror. But there's a very fine line between um, trying to explain exactly what has happened and uh, being overly literal in a way. You, you want the reader to see what happened and see what's written. But at the same time, you want it to be – uh, kind of like that laughter that comes over the temple wall. You want it to be hidden enough that the reader has to kind of ponder it and come to, the, come to their own kind of horrified reaction rather than have the, the text give you the horrified reaction, if, if, that, if that makes sense.
1: It does. In fact, we um, in a class I'm teaching, we just read Watchmen. The graphic novel, sure. right? And, yeah. And talked about oh, God. the importance of just in terms of violence and the experience of violence in a narrative, um, the gutter. Right. Which is the space mm-hmm. between different panels in a comic book. So you have that one moment of action and then another moment of action that are sequential. But there's something that happens from one to the other that's not depicted. And right. that's the responsibility of the reader. To imagine that and to fill that in in the passage from one to the other, right? And this is often described as a gutter. And mm-hmm. what you just mentioned—the you know—the work that the reader needs to do to imagine and evoke what happened—that work, I think, at least for me in my experience of that passage that you're talking about, where she's bleeding from below, it actually makes it a much more powerful experience as a reader then right? if you had just right. said this happened then this happened then this happened I mean I think it's I so i I found that to be incredibly powerful mm-hmm. as a moment in the translation and I think in part for that reason because it is um, it the reader is complicit in creating the narrative at that point and imagining exactly. what would have happened right and that's it it stays
0: with you and and that that being complicit is is something that Mao Dun is, is uh, perhaps not consciously interested in, but I think that's something that happens um, with a lot of good writers, Mao Dun included, where uh, with a little bit of, of um, pulling away from that explicitness, you can make the reader much more uh, engaged and complicit. Like you say, yeah, that's a that's a great way of putting it.
1: So, Dave, we've now, if I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's actually true, um, we've now come to the conclusion oh. of the conversation. Um, so there are probably a million, billion things that we could talk about that we haven't had a chance to talk about I mean, um, in terms of your work as a translator, in terms of what's happening um, and the beauty of the prose of this novel and Malden's work in context. And there's a lot that is here in the book for the reader, and I hope um, listeners do have a chance to pick up and not just read the book, but also teach with the book. I think that's something that we um, that needs to be said, is that this is going to be an amazing resource for teaching, um, as well as you know for reading and working through. Now, is there anything in particular um, or anything in general that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to become readers?
0: Well, I think y- y- you touch on something that's very close to my heart. The the I this was designed to be a book for non-specialists. This was designed to be a book that anyone could could pick up and and read. And I think that um, especially for for your listeners who are academics. Um, as you said translation is not usually given the uh, the the standing that most academic work is is given and and that's probably not something we can change in in a day or two but um there's so much out there uh that that uh, is just begging to be translated and very often we stay in our own we stay in our own lanes and um w- w- without giving more people an opportunity non chinese speakers an opportunity to read these things i think we do as as academics we do a great disservice to the field um it, if we can use translation to get more people reading these things i think um it 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 does us good because in classes we can have these conversations, but I think it, in broader terms it is kind of a, a a grand social good. If I can if I can be a little hyperbolic, but I yeah. think we should ta- we should take translation more seriously than we do.
1: I completely agree with you. And as a just a kind of brief follow up question for listeners who might be with us today, who are thinking, yeah, that's great. I want to you know do some translation from Chinese mm-hmm. into English. Um, where, you know, what would be a great, um, you know, what basically for you, uh, Dave, as a, as a translator, <laughs> but also as a reader, are there any works in Chinese that you think are screaming to be translated into English oh, that you would yeah. like, love to see? If you had a million billion dollars to just give to someone and extra years of their life to just be here, <laughs> what would you love to see translated into English?
0: Well, I think it, today we're 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 seeing uh, we're luckily seeing kind of a, a, a rebirth of, of translation of contemporary things. We're with Ken Liu and and some other people. We're getting some wonderful science fiction stuff that's mm-hmm. being translated uh, recently, and I'm very excited to see that. Um, but I, I, because it's where my heart is, um, and and I. I don't think we need to go in. I, I don't have a specific authors in, in mind, but I think there's so much in the in the butterfly fiction era and in kind of the the, the roaring twenties wild era. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people. I think are are have a have a bias toward grand fiction, a bias toward canonical works and that's critical and we have to do that obviously. But it I think it's a shame to ignore popular things, ignore things that were very uh, that people loved to read because I think that tells us so much about, you know, not just the intellectuals, not just the scholarly folks, but what did people enjoy? And I think that's uh, really critical to understand, particularly in the in the pre-revolutionary period, where I think we give we think that everyone was walking around reading Lu Xun and and Shen and Ding Ling, and, and of course they weren't. But uh, we need those people. But I think we need the popular stuff as well.
1: So now that the book is out, and congratulations again! It's already <laughs> received you. a claim, um, and it really is a marvelous <laughs> translation. What's next for you? What uh, what are you currently working on?
0: Well, I, I do have some uh, some articles that I'm working on, but the next big thing that I that I'm uh Working on. I'm halfway through a new translation by uh, Zhang Tianyi of a of a novel that I'm calling The Pigeon Warrior. Tentatively, that's the title, Ooh. and it's a um, it's a, a a satire 1930s satire of of kung fu novels and nationalism in in kind of this uh, half half colonialized Shanghai. And it's a the basic the gist of the story is it's a it's a guy who has done nothing but read kung fu novels his own his whole life and and he wants to go he's chased off into shanghai and he wants to find a master who can teach him kung fu to um to kick out all the the invading foreigners and it's a it's a long series of of people duping him with with cons and and trying to and tricking him out of his money it's a it's a it's a crazy romp
1: Well, that sounds awesome. So finish that up, and then we'll talk about that next. So give me a, yeah, give me an email when that comes out, and we will definitely, definitely be talking about the pigeon warrior. Okay, thank you so much, Dave. It really was a pleasure. Um, thanks for making the time.
0: Thank you so much, Carla.
1: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.